The 2015 Disney movie Inside Out was promoted with the tagline, Meet the Voices in Your Head. First day of school, very, very exciting. I was up late last night figuring out a new plan. Here it is, fear. I need a list of all the possible negative outcomes on the first day at a new school. Way ahead of you there. Does anyone know how to spell meteor? Disgust. Make sure Riley stands out today, but also blends in. When I'm through, Riley will look so good, the other kids will look at their own outfits and barf. Joy. Yes, Joy? You'll be in charge of the console, keeping Riley happy all day long. And may I add, I love your dress, it's adorable. Oh, this old thing? Thank you so much. I love the way it twirls. Train of thought, right on schedule. It's one of the smartest movies ever made for more accurately illustrating how the human brain functions. It's important for mainstream media sources to depict things with a level of accuracy. People start believing this stuff and then spreading it as fact. For example, Google 70,000 thoughts per day. You'll easily find sources clearly claiming the human brain has that many thoughts in the average day. That myth is right up there with humans only using 10% of their brain. They made a whole movie about that. Or that 93% of all communication is nonverbal. All nonsense with no scientific support. A new study with scientific support is showing we, as humans, think an average 6,200 thoughts per waking day. That makes more sense, and we're closer to understanding what influences the transition every 10 seconds from one thought to the next, inside and out. My name is Doug Downs, music off the top, the theme from Inside Out, composed by Michael Giacchino. My guest this week is Dr. Jordan Popink from Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Hello, Jordan. Hi. And you're actually joining us from Chicago today um, on parental leave. That's right. Uh, yeah, we've had a, a new son and um, uh, life is all over the place right now. So for now, it's taken us to, to Illinois and, uh, and then back to Queen's after that. That's outstanding. Jordan, you are the Canada Research Chair in Cognitive Neuroscience at Queen's. You earned your PhD at the University of Toronto. You also have a Master of Arts from the U of T, University of Toronto, and a Bachelor of Science with honors from Western University in my old hometown, London, Ontario. Your work involves brain imaging, lots of functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI to track neural evidence of memory reactivation within people's brains. You also study neural processes that underlie how people remember, which is kind of a, it's a holy grail thing in, in communications and marketing, to tell you the truth. Okay, thought worms. And the idea of how many thoughts the average person has in the average day, just over 6,000 thoughts per day per waking day, for the average person. Question one, of course, what is a thought worm? What percentage are conscious as opposed to subconscious? And any idea how many of them we might classify as positive as opposed to negative since we seem to interpret everything as in an emotional state as humans? Yeah, um, so there's there's uh, a lot uh, behind that that big question. Um, maybe I'll just start by addressing the the um, the point about about thoughts per day. 
Um, and, and, you know, why we would do any kind of brain research to try and answer that question. Uh, you know, and the answer is, is that um, it's in psychology, uh, a kind of old technique to simply approach people and ask them these things, you know, like, uh, uh, are you having a thought right now? Um, you know, tell me when you're having a new thought or press this key when you have a new thought and, and then just measure it and, you know, uh, call it a day. Uh, certainly be a lot simpler than, than gathering brain images. And of course, the, the, the problem with this technique, which we describe as introspection, which is uh, looking into your own mind to try and uh, report what's there uh, in a sense uh, empirically, um, the problem with that is is that uh, we are really poor at describing our own internal uh, state. Um, it's a lot of it off... Uh, like not accessible to us. And uh, for another thing, it, it doesn't seem to produce uh, consistent, reliable measurements um, across, certainly across laboratories, but even within the same person. And so, uh, you know, not going into the whole history of it, but uh, much of early science and psychology uh, really started once people got off this idea that, well, we, we should be <laughs> just asking ourselves these, these simple questions. So um, that's uh, just a prelude to to explain why we would take this far more complex approach. Um, the the uh, strategies that, that um, my group's been trying to develop to, to learn more about uh, people's internal state and their, and their thoughts uh, and their memories um, are instead focused on uh, trying to, to like reach into a person's brain and observe without them having to uh, say anything to us, uh, what's the dynamic in there? What's, what's going on? Um, so, uh, you know, that's, that's the black box that, that, um, we've been trying to, to crack. And there's big databases out there with, with, uh, uh, people's, um, brains and brain scans and, uh, and ongoing, um, for hours, uh, thoughts of them, uh, while they're just lying on their backs and not doing anything in particular. Um, and so that's the, that's the, um, the, the box we want to crack. And that's where we started, uh, this process of, of developing some tools. Um, and, uh, and the tool that we developed, uh, was, uh, one that, uh, we call, uh, thought worms. Um, and to, to, uh, help understand what this, this means, um, just imagine that you're, you're, uh, drawing your thoughts uh, on a piece of paper. And uh, there's uh, a long line that you're using to do this. And uh, uh, if you're like most people, it's not like a totally straight line, but it's kind of going in big swerves and, and uh, detours as you are um, uh, thinking of, of different things. Um, but uh, uh, it turns out that um, if you if you take the brain's perspective on this, that um, it's not just big swerves and swirls. It's uh, you actually taking the pencil off the paper and jumping to another point um, as you continue the line. Uh, and so, um, without getting into the the methodology, which I'm sure we'll talk about, um, the uh, the idea is that that um, there's these discrete points where in time where we've separated our prior state to a new state. And uh, that creates on your piece of paper these little segments that we call worms. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, this then gives us access to uh, other ideas, like we can count up the number of worms and say, well, how many of these were there in a period of time? Um, and then uh, we can get to this uh, 
age-old question that we started with of how many thoughts uh, in a in a day or other unit of time um, by uh, by using that uh, inference. You know, we're we're going by by proxy from something biological as opposed to a person's own efforts to try and uh, communicate something. Um, so that's the basic uh, uh, framework about uh, about what a thought worm is. I have so many thoughts after hearing <laughs> that. Um, let me let me and and let me try to focus. Do thought worms overlap? You talked about them kind of bouncing like a pencil off the page to a completely other part of the page. Mm -hmm. Do they overlap? And and where does multitasking fit into this? Because of course now we're hearing multitasking is a myth. And of course, I respect that. But at the same time, I have to think I'm multitasking all the freaking time. <laughs> I'm always thinking a million things. Yeah. Um, so our our, uh, our research is, is somewhat agnostic on that particular uh, question, uh, because uh, what we're observing is uh, the state of the brain. So uh, to go into a little more detail on, on like how we generate this line of thoughts, um, what we, we do is we take all of, say, say uh, we scan your brain for um, an hour. And uh, during that hour, there's a new picture of your brain that's coming out like every second. So we've got all these different pictures and uh, we feed it into some uh, statistical algorithms that assess, well, how different and similar are these pictures to each other? And uh, pictures that are uh, quite similar, they have similar patterns, uh, they get put close and uh, pictures that are dissimilar get placed far away. And so uh, what falls out of this process is this diagram of the line, um, which uh, just because of uh, the nature of, of your mind um, drifting tends to be very similar at, at um, one moment in time to the next, um, but quite distant uh, as time proceeds. And again, these jumps take place uh, in, in the process. So, uh, so the, the reason I, I explain this um, is to sort of connect it to the biology. Um, you know, this is just how uh, your brain looks uh, over time. That's all that we're, we're assessing. And so if you're multitasking, um, that is going to have, uh, it's going to appear as it would while you are um, doing even a single task where uh, perhaps, uh, as you get partway through task two, uh, you jump to some new aspect of it, it's still going to produce what appears to us to be a new thought worm because you've jumped from, from place one to, to place two. So uh, I suppose um, uh, any uh, deviation um, in whichever task is, is going to um, uh, lead to the, the uh, biological um, appearance of a, of a new uh, thought worm. Um, but it's certainly a very interesting question as to, you know, uh, whether this, does this mean, for instance, that uh, while you're multitasking, you should expect a higher rate of, of, uh, of these thought worm transitions. Um, and is that why it's more cumbersome to try and load up more than one task at a time? Uh, there's a lot of interesting open questions like this now that we've, we've developed this tool. That deserve more study for sure. Um, and this study shows at least a better understanding of how our thoughts transform from one to another. So help me, how do I understand as a marketing and comms professional, again, I think it's kind of holy grail. How do I go from drinking a cup of coffee to thinking about something else in particular? And how do I influence that person? We're now at the stage 
in in digital advertising where I, I can genuinely get someone in a moment in time. I know they're listening to music. I know they're working out. Um, I might know they're at a coffee shop. We're at that stage. So how do I harness what they're doing and get them to think about my thing? How do I manipulate and influence them, Jordan? Well, you know, it's funny. Whenever whenever marketing comes up in in uh, cognitive <laughs> neuroscience, I, I tend to tell my students, you know, like the practitioners are miles ahead of this uh, relative to where we are in the theory, uh, because you know I think the practice has been very effective, and obviously there's a lot of minds working hard to try and understand that, um, likely more than there are in, in academia looking at the at the fundamentals. Um, in our case, uh, you know, what we're what we're able to do is is capture this this transition, and uh, it's a metric. Um, but it's not explanatory. Um, you know, we're we're um, uh, we're in need of theory to try and uh, explain uh, when this flight takes place um, from from the the perch of one thought to the perch of another. Um, but uh, I think that uh, probably at, at this point in time, uh, the clearest answers uh, to to how to to steer a mind into to your particular uh, topic is best answered by a marketing professional. Sure, um, <laughs> where there's a lot of experience in. in that. And I think heuristics play a big role there. The brain is basically a, a, a lazy thing that never stops working. And, and if I can put something in front of somebody, I might be able to capture their attention like that. Um, 6,200 thoughts per day. That's a, one thought every 10 seconds, depending on your sleep pattern. How might that influence how I present, uh, how I blog, how I podcast? How many thought worms is, is a listener experiencing during our 20, 25 minute podcast episode? Um, how does that influence how I present? Well, um, you know what? I, I think that the the immediate take-home message from this line of work uh, is to give credence to uh, the point that any experienced presenter would give uh, to their to their students, uh, which is, uh, you know, slow it down and uh, be um, concise. You know, if you're if you're um, uh, looking at a set of slides that are full of of text and you're trying to convey uh, uh, something to people, then um, uh, of course they're going to to quickly become overwhelmed and uh, detach from your slide. Uh, you're trying to get them to shoehorn too many ideas uh, into one state. Uh, and if we know that there's not just um, you know, a point of interest in our audience, but actually a, a, a biological limitation in the amount of maneuvering a person can do uh, in their mind, uh, then um, it really underscores the imperative of, of uh, those two factors, uh, conciseness um, and um, pace. So uh, I, again, I, I think this would not come as a surprise to a marketing professional, um, but I, I do think that it, it uh, converges in a nice way. It kind of helps us uh, see the tie-in point between our, our biology uh, and uh, um, heuristics and practice that, that seem to be effective. I've got another podcast that I want to tell you about that I think you might like. Every week, the global creative agency Gray brings you exactly what you need to know to sound smart when talking about social media on the podcast, Five Things This Week in Social. The team at Gray have produced over 125 weekly episodes and were named Adweek's Best Agency Hosted Podcast for 2022. 
The hosts have partnered with some of the world's biggest brands and are experts in social media and emerging tech. They'll discuss everything from the next Instagram feature to how we shop in the metaverse. Listen to five things this week in social, wherever you get your podcasts. Search for it in your podcast app with the hashtag and the number five. That's five things this week in social. Can you, because I have you here, can you help me understand memory a little better? So I've always read the hippocampus is basically the governor of at least midterm memory. In other words, if the hippocampus decides to drop it, then it then the memory can be gone. It, it can be completely, that, that exists, that's the thing. You don't store everything. Does the hippocampus hold the classic seven to nine things? Does it hold only three or four things at a time, which I think is the more modern thinking. We, we're not marvels of, of conscious memory. And is memory stored in various parts of the brain? In other words, it's not just one part of my brain that holds a specific memory, but all over the place. How does, if you can, in a couple of minutes or less, if you can, explain to me how memory functions in the brain, because I think it's an important part of what we do as well. Sure. I mean, this is this is uh, the the topic of third year college courses, so I, I won't give you a great uh, appreciation of it in a, in a few minutes. But um, you know, the um, I think that the key thing is is to distinguish uh, uh, forms of memory, and uh, you know, we have the the contents of our consciousness. You know, what we're able to apprehend this moment, and this is what you were referencing with respect to how many things can fit in there, uh, and that's that's been uh, as 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 you mentioned, the subject of some evolution, uh, and there's discussion about whether it's, you know, really seven or three or whatever the, the number may be. Um, and uh, then there's our, our uh, sort of memory of the world. And, uh, you know, this is like knowing how, how uh, to drive your car to work and, you know, who the, who the uh, prime minister is and, and things, things like this uh, that are acquired over, over, excuse me, a long time. Um, and then there's memories of, of what happened. You know, if it's a thing that you can like put yourself in your shoes at a different time and place, uh, sort of mental time travel, uh, then it's like us seeing the world through our own eyes at another point in time. And that's the kind of memory that the hippocampus is really like uh, in, involved with. Um, and uh, what the hippocampus is doing is creating a record of the contents of our consciousness. So it's like you take that experience that you had and um, it's like you were, you know, capturing it with a video camera, uh, which, you know, is, is a limited metaphor, but it, it, it's it, it helpful in distinguishing it from um, the idea of, of, you know, ideas about, about the world. So, so um, that's the job that we think of the hippocampus doing, and it's the thing that we notice is, is um, problematic in people who've uh, had damage to their hippocampus. And, and, I mean, a big part of your research and your study is on neuroanatomy. Do we interpret memory differently? If you and I saw the same thing, heard the same thing, smelled the same thing, whatever, tasted the same thing, um, do we interpret that differently and therefore create sometimes entirely different memories? Uh, I think that the the 
nature of your memory and my memory uh, is really comes down to a, a function of our of our different conscious experiences. Again, it's it's really all filtered through your own lens, which is colored by, of course, your own extensive uh, personal history with the world and with the things that we're experiencing. Um, you know, if we're if we're tasting the same physical thing, um, you know, stepping beyond the fact that okay, we have different olfactory receptors and the physical sensations are actually going to be different to you and me. Let's make it simpler and say we're looking at the same painting. Um, you know, that's going to visually appear very similar in our two brains. Um, but uh, you know, if it's a painting of like. Um, uh, say a banana, um, that, you know, whether, um, you've had, uh, bananas in your life, um, or not is going to really color your, your impressions and, and reaction to that stimulus. So, um, that's kind of taking the, the story away from, from, um, memory. Um, but, uh, I think where it comes to neuroanatomy and what you're, what you're getting at is, is that, uh, there's also these dimensions, um, beyond our experience, of um, how does the the um, architecture differ from one person to another, um, and, you know, independent of our different experiences. Um, and uh, one of the big research questions in my lab is um, when you take people with different hippocampi, uh, and morphologically they can appear very different, um, does this reflect um, a different kind of mode of, of um, operation? You know, does, does person one who has a small hippocampal head and, and a big hippocampal posterior, do their memories tend to focus more on the details of, of their experiences and the, and the visual percepts, um, whereas a person who's got the different opposite kind of hippocampus with a big head, maybe they're more focused on the big ideas and they're synthesizing things, um, but maybe overlooking uh, uh, some of the persnickety uh, details. Um, so uh, whether those are different types of people is uh, a, an interesting question uh, to us. And um, uh, it's also taken us down the road of trying to understand other potential differences among people that could evolve out of uh, their different neural architectures. So one of those questions, of course, concerns thought worms. Can we explain uh, different rates of thoughts in different people as a function of something in their brains? Um, and uh, perhaps the hippocampus is a, is a contributor to that. This is actually how we got into thought worms, because we thought, well, if you're a kind of person who uh, has um, uh, a powerful um, memory system, uh, perhaps it's it's uh, snagging all kinds of things in your environment and sending you back into your memories, and, and therefore um, that's holding you in place for a while and not letting your thoughts drift off. Uh, you're kind of stuck in a in a um, uh, like black hole of of a particular memory. Um, uh, that particular thesis is one we're still exploring, um, but uh, you know the 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 notion that. Um, uh, we could uh, differ in these in these ways. Uh, I think is a really interesting one to to examine, and uh, in particular in the sense that um, uh, it sort of um, uh, commingles with our development as as individuals. That our experiences um, uh, might reflect some affordances of of our our brains. And and to give you an example, like imagine that you're someone who who has um, a really uh, acute sense of smell, um, maybe uh, for you, it's more 
practical to um, uh, remember things about the world uh, and to distinguish people and, and things in terms of how they smell and for somebody else who doesn't have much of a sense of smell. Um, and so you end up going very different ways. It's not necessarily that you are that way because your brain looks like this, but you got that place because of, of your brain uh, starting out a little differently. So, so um, and it's a, a nuance that sort of inserts development into the, uh, to the end point of what we see in the, in the scanner, um, but uh, is, is one that I think is very interesting. I love this episode. I, I really appreciate your time. And, and next steps in your work, um, it, it's always about doing additional research. There's always next steps um t tell me about what you're focused on and and, and uh, uh the applications for funding because inevitably you have to create uh, applications that express points that this is how this this kind of research can help society uh, and can help the scientific community as well tell me about where you're at with that Sure. Well, uh, one branch of the individual difference work that I described is trying to understand differences in, in eyewitnesses. Um, perhaps, uh, you know, uh, one uh, person who saw a, a crime or an event um, can be counted on to deliver a certain kind of information better from their memories than somebody uh, who has a different sort of brain. Um, so we're looking at differences between people and assessing the quality of different aspects of their memory uh, as a function of, of those neural differences. Um, and that's already uh, funded work. Uh, that's, that's through SHRC. Um, another uh, uh, set of questions, of course, concerns um, these, these thought worms, which is a focus uh, for us uh, in the near future. Um, and uh, there, too, um, uh, the sorts of, of questions you highlighted about uh, multitasking, for instance, are, are interesting ones. Um, uh, the, the nature of how thoughts turn over um, in your sleep uh, is, is an interesting one to us. Um, it gives us access to uh, dynamics that, that really can take us in, in a lot of different directions. So um, trying to uh, identify the, the um, uh, sort of sources of low-hanging fruit, places we can peer into in the, in the immediate uh, term with our new tool, uh, is something that we've been um, uh, doing. And uh, I say we've been doing and, and that we're focused on, and uh, uh, <laughs> the reality of, of this comment is I've, I've been on uh, parental leave uh, for <laughs> some time yeah. now, and uh, <laughs> I'm not back until April. So, uh, you know, there's, there's a bit of a, a hiatus in there. But, um, you know, once my, my son is uh, old enough to, to start toddling around, then um, it'll, be, uh, it'll be back to some of these, these big research questions. Real quick, would your son, who's just a toddler, like from newborn, um, he's less than a year, right? Mm -hmm. Does he have 6,200 thoughts in a day? Like, uh, how does that differ uh, by age? It's a great question. Um, and there are, uh, there are data sets available of, of uh, uh, participants that, that span the, the uh, lifespan. Um, and so uh, that too is one of the questions that that we've um, applied this uh, this tool towards is to try and uh, see um, does uh, um, an 80 year old have a different pace of right. thinking than a than a, uh, a 50, 30, or or a two year old? Um, and uh, it's a it's a question we're we're um, uh, waiting to answer. We've got all the data lined up and we've got our analyses turning, but we we don't have uh, output at this point. Well, we'll we'll have have you back on after that research for sure cool <laughs> thanks for your time today i really appreciate it jordan oh it's been a pleasure thanks for inviting me 
If you'd like to send a message to my guest, Dr. Jordan Popink, best way to do that is through the website at Queen's University. He's on paternal leave right now. The address is in the show notes. We're working on a Halloween episode and hope that you might be able to help us out. Would you be willing to share in a very short voice message your scariest PR or marketing moment? Maybe it happened to you. Maybe it happened to someone else. It could be about that scary boss or that time you hit reply all and oh no. Uh, Something like that, a short message. We don't need your name. We don't need your contact information. Just go to speakpipe.com backslash stories and strategies. From there, all you do is click record. And actually, when you do, if you don't like it, you you, you muff it up first take. You had some thought worms that got into your head. Just hit stop and you can re-record. You can delete what you've got and re-record. It's real simple. Speakpipe.com backslash stories and strategies stories and strategies is a co-production of jgr communications and stories and strategies podcasts our only request is if you enjoyed this episode would you place one thought worm about this podcast into the mind of someone you know share it tell somebody thanks for listening